welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, the show that sifts through the TV gold and detritus so you don't have to. I'm Terry White and this week I'm sitting on the throne of our bellend leader, James C. Dyer. But don't fear, because we are honouring him later in our own inimitable way. More on that in a bit. Also this week we'll be joining a friend as he tries to protect our national security in season two of Intelligence. A troubled cop as she tries to solve a murder case in fog-drenched crime drama, The Gloaming. And joining David Diggs and Raphael Casal as they tackle gentrification in Oakland. Joining me this week, we firstly have a woman who hails from the fair land of Swindon, which is neither known, as far as I'm aware, for either fog or gentrification. (laughs) But maybe she can correct us and tell us something about Swindon this fine morning. It is... Your friend and mine, Bethy Webb. Hello, Bethy. Hello. Uh, well, I can tell you about Swindon is we've got two Swindon girls up for BAFTAs this Sunday, which I'm incredibly mm-hmm. excited about. Ooh. Technically, Daisy May Cooper hails from Sirencester, but she flies the flag of Swindon, as you did see it, however many years ago as she wore that fucking iconic Swindon Town FC shirt on the red carpet, something that I am eyeing up for Halloween myself. Uh, and my my beloved Billy Piper is also up for BAFTA, so I'm going to be crossing everything this oh, Sunday. Yeah, she's from Swindon. I always forget that. She went to my school. Well, did, do you know her? Is that is that where this is going? You rivaling no. Boyd for celebrity friends. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish. No, she was far too cool for me in school. Um, and then she obviously became like a teen sensation. So she went off and like ruled the world and I just did home economics and PE. So no, our ship, we were ships in the night. <laughs> But I do hope one day our paths will, yeah. will cross. So yeah, I'm crossing everything for those two girls on uh, on Sunday night. Oh, that's exciting. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit of news later. And finally this week, the man who knows, I think, a great deal about both inclement weather and the rapid and corrosive impact of capitalism on our urban centres It is Mr. Boydie Hilton. Boydie. Hey, I just want to say that... Talk to me about gentrification. Uh, I'll talk to you about gentrification, <laughs> but I wanted to apologise to everyone for the fact that somehow James Dyer's made this episode about him, all about him, even though he's not here. When Even when he's not here. So the question is kind of about him that we're going to talk about later. And he set up this whole thing about I'm re-watching something mystery for all his followers and fans on Twitter. Like, uh, we're supposed to be all excited about working out about what new stupid programme he's re-watching when we've got this, we're doing this podcast without him frankly, and he's just taking the whole thing over. Furious. I did, I did enjoy that last night. That um, he's, he's, he's not the best at social media. I mean, also, we're just propagating this entire thing by now talking about him. I know, I know, sorry. <laughs> he did toss that out casually. It was like he'd read a social media Twitter manual mm. and was like, I'm going to tease the diehards yeah. yeah. just to keep them engaged while yeah. I'm offline. What a prick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd say that to his face. Yeah, I think you do most Fridays. Yeah. Yeah. So let us start. Let us, let us ignore the uh, the ghost of, of Belland past and let us talk about what we've been watching this week. Bethy, do you want to start us off? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know if, if your bank holidays were snuffed out in quite the same way as mine, but on uh, Monday evening, I did sit down to the finale of Mare of Town. So that was... Oh my goodness gracious me. For one, I'm sad it's over. Like I I do think we got a true small screen hero in this show in Kate Winslet. There was there was a scene in it which stuck out for me. She comes back from like a tough day, like a re- even for her a tough day. And you've got a marvel at 
she just looked fucking tired. She looked so tired to a degree that even I don't think makeup could achieve. There was just like a moment where, I mean, she's harried at the best of times, but she comes back from this day and she looks like dreadful. And I say this with the the kindest of hearts and I'm I'm really going to miss her. I'm going to miss her so much. And just the way that that episode, and and I appreciate we can only talk so much about it, but the way that that episode evolved from like a whodunit into just like a really sad, effective, like anti-gun campaign. But yeah, so that was, that was a big watch for me this week. That for not, I mean, we, we set it up last week because I hadn't watched it and and Boyd and James had, had jumped ahead and I was determined to watch it in real. I made a big fuss about I'm going to watch it with in real time. I've been watching it at nine o'clock every Monday night for weeks and I am not giving that up. And then I got up at 6am on Bank Holiday Monday with my son who couldn't sleep because apparently that's what time babies get up. I'm discovering. And it was there looking at me and I was like, don't do it. Resist temptation. Don't do it. But then you have this, when you have a baby, you have this weird gap in the morning before most of the world awakes. And I'm sure some people use it. I think Tony Morrison used that time to write iconic, great works of literature. I use it to watch telly. <laughs> and so it was there looking at me and I was like, oh God, don't, don't do it. And then I just snapped. And I even... I've stopped giving my baby a bottle in the morning because we're weaning him off bottles. And I sneak, sneakily and secretly gave him a bottle, <laughs> even though I'd agreed with my boyfriend we weren't giving him one in the morning anymore, just so he would be quiet while I watched Mare of Easttown. But I, I mean, I agree with everything you say. I, I see it as a continuation of actually the kind of work Kate Winslet began in Ammonite, which was a, a performance completely lacking in vanity at all. And I I see Mare as, as a kind of continuation of that, but more so, I mean, the, the writing for me is remarkable. And we've talked on this podcast about the blinking, the blinking in that therapy scene. It carries more narrative weight than most of the things I've ever seen, just her blinking. But there was a, there was a thing that hit me about the finale and it was when, and, and we should just say, we, we will talk about some details of the finale here. So if you do not, want to listen because you haven't watched it please do skip forward we'll put the um timestamp in the notes for you but there was a bit where guy pierce is is leaving for his job um by the way i'm loving the outrage that he was just there to further her her character development and was just the loving dress (laughs) welcome to women on tv people but there was there was a moment where he's saying goodbye to her and she's trying she's clearly moved and upset and she's trying to articulate like why she's upset about him leaving. And she just says, Why why are you leaving when it when it just got good? And it was such a mere thing to say because instead of the writers trying to prove how verbose they are by making Mare this kind of overly intellectualized character, they let her speak like a normal mm-hmm. woman. They 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 are so true to the character that that is exactly what Mare would say. Mare wouldn't be able to dig into her psyche enough to understand why she was actually upset about this guy she claimed not to be bothered about. And their commitment to the reality of that character. I'm fascinated by the way she talks, the way she moves. We've talked a lot about the way she eats carbs, the way she laughs, like everything about this, the way they've built this character, Kate Winslet and the writers, I just think is extraordinary. What do we think about the issue of whether there should be another series? So already it's become when when it, when a show, when a limited series arrives that is this good, inevitably 
everyone goes, oh, they should just leave it there. I think slightly pompously, you know, like, we don't want them to. But it's a. She it could easily do a second series. She's still alive. <laughs> Spoiler alert. The people who created this superbly written and conceived character are perfectly capable of coming up with another series, another thing for her to solve. And that's her job, by the way, is to solve crime. So it's not like a far-fetched you know, way of keeping it going just for the hell of it. I think it would be insane to not do a second series and to not bring us... I, you're right. It's, she's such a great character that you miss her. Yeah. Like you miss that week, you know, the, the treat of seeing her. Um, yeah, I and I agree so much about how right from the start they made it the mystery is really compelling and actually the answer to who done it I think is a like on the one hand like a lot of people guessed I saw a lot of people guessed like Stephen King the night before the finale went out if you say literally guessed it and was like this is who I think it is and he was classic right classic fucking Stephen classic King classic fucking Stephen King ruining it for everyone <laughs> but but it made sense thematically didn't it? It made and and dramatically because you had that incredibly powerful last few minutes, which was oh so incredible. It was about so. I think that the answer to who did it was did, was as much about the character and about these incredibly emotional, moving moments at the end as it was coming up with a, a feasible solution to who mm. solved the crime. Yeah. So it worked on every single level for me, and that is just something incredibly special. Yeah. I mean, that final, I have to say, that final shot of, of you know, Mare finally feeling strong enough to go into the loft yeah. where her son ended his own life. I mean, just that being the end, that that small sig- yet significant thing, and that was like, that was what I loved so much about it. There were moments when other writers and filmmakers, I think, would have taken much bigger dramatic swings, yeah. really made sure you understand what they were saying about the character. But I also feel like, it, a, it could exist as a is a perfect one season, but just that step forward, small step forward, Mare took. There's so much more to get to know. There's so much more for her to yeah. unpack about herself and for us to learn about her. Mm. That and I hate all I, I hate all that shit too, boy. Do all that snobby like, oh, don't you touch my perfect season yeah. of my yeah. prestige exactly. drama? Fuck yeah. off! Yeah. Like great <laughs> telly, great right. telly. Right, <laughs> create, we create one of the greatest oh. characters in recent TV history, and then we've got to leave it there because why, you mad people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I do miss I miss her and I've been thinking about it and I'm tempted to go back and, and do a rewatch already mm. which also seems like a bit too soon. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it. it's just I mean I, yeah. I just thought it was perfection, absolute everything about it really. And those three women, those scenes you're talking about at the end Boyd mm. with her mum and obviously her best friend Oof. and those, the, the performances all of those three women put in are Emmy winning yeah. performances. I Julianne think. Nicholson, Julianne yeah, Nicholson. I mean, incredible. Just the like nuances of the development. I loved like that fi- final, that final shot, but also things like Mare just laughing and putting her hand on the shoulder of her mm. ex-husband's new wife. Yeah. Just little moments like that. It's not wrapping things up with a big bow, but it's just little kind of mm. inches forward. I love it. I thought it was great. I don't know if I can do a rewatch just yet. My, my partner gets quite emotionally invested in shows. And I will say there is just a character, Colin, who we can't talk about in the house just Aww. yet without him getting like really upset. So yeah. we're going to need a bit of time that before is- we come back to Colin. But um, yeah. I, Who's I, Colin? What's Colin? Evan Peters. Oh, but yeah, so yeah. I think we need the dust to sell. I think we need to build ourselves back up again. I always forget his name was Colin. He's such a Colin. He's such, He's a, such Colin. a Colin. He's such a Colin. He is a funny name. Oh, sweet, sweet, sweet Colin. Colin. Who no longer has a face. Um. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and what else have you guys oh, been watching apart from uh... So I got up this morning and specific, you know, people are getting up to watch Mare, to watch WandaVision. I got up to watch the first episode of Feel Good <gasps> season two because it's just come on. I, I haven't had access to the previews. And so I ate my saurine loaf this morning and watched uh, episode one, season two of Feel Good. And uh, I mean, you, you spoke about it at length this week but like oh i love it so much i love something i'd like to add to this i love me martin wholly and firmly believe that this is her show but i do think credit where credit's due to charlotte ritchie because i genuinely mm. think she's one of the best comedy even like tv like british tv actresses that we've got i think sometimes she gets because she does either like big ensemble shows like ghosts or you know fresh meat where she was oregon and uh she tends to be one of many moving parts, but she really gets to flex a, a really emotional muscle here. And I love how much they've lent into her Britishness for this, this season as well. Like getting her to say things like, can you help me move this like rancid pile of guff? Like just really <laughs> silly, like British things that they get her to say. And she, her comic timing is fantastic. So I'm going to sit in tonight and watch all of them in one go, get a big mac and cheese on and watch watch all the feel goods. I love it. I love it so much. What a treat. Yeah, I'm ob- ob- obsessed with it. And, you know, that's something I am gutted isn't going to be a third season. And, you mm. know, Mae Martin's talked about why and, and why she thinks two is right. But I just think it's, I think, because I loved, I was obsessed with season one and season two for me, I just found incredibly moving, incredible, but just incredibly funny. It is it is yeah. easily one of the funniest things. Between that and Motherland, I just feel like we've had two of the <laughs> greatest like British comedy series in recent times in the last month. It feels like we're completely spoiled. Did you watch the entire thing of season two, Boyd? Yeah, I watched it all in one go the night before. Yeah, we, I think we both interviewed them on the same day. So I watched it, yeah, and it, I, absolutely, I think that's the best way to watch it, yeah. Because it's so, it just works mm. so well as like a three-hour romantic comedy, the greatest three-hour romantic comedy you'll ever see, pretty much. It, it's so satisfying. I think they've done an incredible job. I was lucky enough to interview her this week as part of a BAFTA panel for they do these BAFTA panels before the awards um, arrive, and I interviewed her and Bemiso Locumello from Famalam and Daisy Haggard of Breeders, which <laughs> I know you still haven't embraced. Breeders, I'm going to mention that in a minute, and it was just great to see them like bouncing off each other and celebrating their brilliance but that but but feel good season two is a massive massive achievement it is fantastic and Charlotte, i'm going to mention breeders now in fact in the what go i've been on, watching go on i was yes. just waiting for you to, yeah to, to so segue season boys. series two of breeders right the thing that everyone hated hated is a big word but the thing that that a lot of people found difficult in series one was how harsh, particularly Martin Freeman's character was to his kids. And, you know, he'd be swearing at them, you know, calling them cunts and this, that, and the other. And people were like, oh my God, that is a lot. And, you know, there was talk about the class and all of that is valid. But I think people might want to, people who rejected season one might want to check out series two because there's a really interesting development, which is that his son is now, I think, 13, 14, and is going through a really difficult time at school. And it's become almost this like drama with very, very funny moments about a kid with anxiety issues and can't deal with just the general daily reality of having to go to school and it's so interesting and it's so it's it's I think it's brilliantly done and it's kind of softening the edges of Martin Freeman's character in particular who's also kind of in therapy about him being really too harsh to his kids so it's kind of in a way addressing the issues that a lot of people had with series one I think in, in, in an interesting way and it's just it's just honestly it's it, Martin Freeman in it is 
inc- I think some of his best work he's ever done. Just really subtle, interesting ways when he realizes he's done something that's going to impact on the mental health of his son. I think is is fascinating. And him about him and Daisy Haggard are the most incredibly believable married couple on TV. They're so brilliant together the way they bounce off each other. So I'm loving that. I've watched a lot of Domino. You know, we reviewed Domino a couple of weeks ago, the ancient Rome drama, which is a bit like I, I think it's like I Claudius, but with incredible 21st century production values. It's really good fun, Domino. It's get, I, I'm absolutely loving it. So I'm kind of watching more and more of that. And the final thing I wanted to mention is Bo Burnham's special. Ah, uh, this is on my watch list. Yeah, on Netflix. It is spectacular. So Bo Burnham, comedian, musician, he has done this 90 minute comedy in quotes special, which he's been filming over the last year in lockdown, literally in one room in his house in LA. And it's quite... It's quite a lot to deal with. There's a lot. It's song after song after song with bits of like in quotes, like monologuing kind of stand up style monologuing. There's incredible. There's a song called White Woman's Instagram in which he lists <laughs> stuff on White Woman's Instagram, which is hilariously funny. You know, stuff like bowls vote me with blueberries arranged in a peace sign, latte foam art, some random quote from Lord <laughs> of the Rings attributed to Martin Luther King, stuff like that. And then in the middle of this song, there's suddenly an incredibly moving moment, which completely pulls the rug from under you. It is phenomenal. So yeah, Bo Burnham Inside is incredible. You could call it a film because it's 90 minutes. Okay, so we were going to go straight to um, a listener question. Now, I did make things worse by asking people for a listener question this week and pointing out that James was off. I was besieged by questions, usually about either suggesting we do some kind of reality anti-James special or basically asking in lots of different ways, why is James a bellend? Um, so I'd like to thank you all for your engagement and contribution because I greatly enjoyed myself last night. I did choose one and there could be only one and it was from Simon Morrison at McGeeky on Twitter. And he said, in honour of James, my question is, which character is the biggest bellend in TV history? And which bellend from a TV show did you actually end up rooting for? Now, I've obviously just recently started and, let's be honest, stopped Succession. But perceived <laughs> wisdom seems to be that Succession has the highest number of most extreme bellends in TV. Would that be right? It's definitely bellend heavy. <laughs> a high ratio of bellends. I think as well it's worth interrogating the definition of a bellend because mm. I feel like I feel like to put to pit James against like a Brian Cox in succession feels just a tiny bit extreme. Like I don't see him <laughs> I don't think so. Pissing on a <laughs> I don't see him like pissing on a carpet in like a in an office. At least I hope that's not what happens. But I feel like James is is kind of a redeemable again, I don't know him as well as you do, and you'll probably correct me on this, but I don't he's kind of a daft bellend. Do you know what I mean? He's not a straight yeah. up piece of shit bellend. He's more of a kind of Michael Scott in the office or like yeah. I'm watching like Mythic Quest at the moment and he reminds me so much of um Rob McCowney's character in <laughs> Mythic yes. Quest. So just yeah. a bit daft and ego, but generally fine. Just generally, just a daft bellend. And then you get to succession or your Game of Thrones and then and there's just like the worst, like bottom Evil. level of hell, Bellend. Yeah. So, so I, I just looked up the definition of Bellend because that is a very good point you make there, Betty. <laughs> and it says either the glands of a penis, I'm going to presume that's not the context in which we're using it. Literally. 
Um, <laughs> an annoying or contemptible man. And I think, you know, right. if we use it as, because actually, yeah, because I, I've been using it in this context to mean kind of evil and awful. Yeah. But if we look at it as annoying, driving you to contempt, that is different, isn't it? Because then you are in the yeah. land of David Brent as opposed to... Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, yeah, it's an interesting... Con- to- contempt is is a good word because I think yeah because we're not talking <laughs> out on out psychopathic villains are we? We're not talking about like and because to start with I was thinking just that's just the worst villains is a different thing yeah but there's something yeah. particular about but and that's why Succession is such a collection of villains because they're not out on out well they're probably if you look at the their role in capitalist Western society they probably are responsible for the deaths of of a lot of people but mm. they're not going out of their way to slaughter people like you would get in Game of Thrones, you know, like Cersei or Joffrey in Game of Thrones are psychopathic to some extent, I think. So, yeah. But contemptible men is definitely a thing that succession is all about. It's definitely all about how... And and there's, like, different levels of contemptibleness, aren't there? Like, you know, from... And like Logan is pretty contemptible. Kendall is like super contemptible. In fact, yeah. Kendall is the is my is was my answer to the second part of the question, which is ones that you kind of root for in the end. Because he, if you ever get to it, the ending of season one puts him in such a nightmarish situation. You are rooting for him, I think, even though you yeah. take on all of his myriad flaws and his bellendery. But what happens to him is so extreme and awful and horrendous that you're like, oh, okay. And he's and what and you see the way his dad deals with it, which is so awful as well. He's, the the dad being an absolute nightmare is makes mm. humanizes all the other bellends mm. beneath him, if you like. But my I suddenly had a kind of bulb lit up moment where I thought, I know light the ultimate t- <laughs> that's a light bulb moment. I had a bulb. I had a bulb. That's the phrase I was looking for. I knew there was a word for it. I was thinking that the ultimate bell end, I think, in TV history is Martin, Claire's husband in Fleabag, played by Brett yes. Gelman. So her sister's husband. That fucking bell end. And I remember <laughs> I just thinking about how brilliantly Phoebe Waller Bridge. Does Belens? Because there's loads of Belens. All the blokes yeah. she meets and shags are Belens, pretty much. But him, that contemptible is the word. Mm. Absolute fucking twat <sighs> who makes a pass at her, then denies that he's a liar. Yeah. He's a grotesque, and but he is absolutely the ultimate fucking massive Belend. And you hate him, and he's so brilliantly conceived and performed and written. That I think he for me he's the ultimate for me and just one of many bellends in the show, but he's the absolute bell end of bellends in Fleabag, I think. That's brilliant. And do we think there are more? Would we say there are more men bellends? Hundred percent, hundred percent. The only woman I could think of really, and this falls under the backable bellend category, was Villanelle in in Killing mm. Eve, who mm. really is a bellend. Like she sucks. She is not a nice yeah. person. But you do, you inevitably. And not just because she's fucking cool, but you do really begin to empath not empathize. There's no way I don't want to kill small children. I like I, there's like a you do you do like you you really want her to be okay. I think is what I think is, is what I think I'm trying to say there. But she was the only woman. It was a strong male category. Eve's a bit of a balance as well, isn't she? It's <laughs> because yeah, you know, and that's and that's what actually made those characters so brilliant and that dynamic so brilliant is instead of her being the goody and her being the baddie, they were both kind of balanced and you rooted for both of them still. But, you know, the way she treated her husband, mm. just despicable behaviour to him. And, yeah, that's a really, really interesting 
point. And actually, I think it because context is interesting to your point, Boyd, because when they kind of start to show Villanelle's background, and I was like, I don't want to know context because, like, mm. I don't understand why you're showing that to us so we can. I don't need to re- be able to relate to Villanelle because, as, as Bethy rightly points out, I, d- I don't need to root any more than I already do for the woman who who uh, slits people's throats. But context is interesting because that's what then enables you to kind of justify any bellendry. I do, I was also going to say Will from the West Wing, who I know they repositioned as not a bellend as the show went on, Will Bailey, but I still mm. could not get on board with him as a I just he's, the way he snakes around when he worked for the vice <laughs> yeah, president office. It's just yeah. something innately smug, and there's a smugness. Mm. Don't know why my mind just went mm. to James, but there's a there's a <laughs> smugness built into Bellendry, isn't there? Because it's it's always a mix of ego and insecurity, but definitely ego, and that that smugness. And Will Bailey for me just like slid around on a smear of margarine whenever I walked <laughs> into a room. Oily, yeah, oily smugness is absolutely yeah. key. Yeah, yeah definitely. 100%, Who else yeah. did you have them, Beth? Well, interestingly, I mean, again, under the, the vein of backable balance, Spike from Buffy was a, um, I mean, he did get quite problematic. Attempted rapist. Yeah, that that's when obviously less backable. But but for for a spell during like the Leon phase where it was him and Dawn and he was kind of trying to tap into the like central crowd, but was still like an mm. accidental bell end almost, like couldn't help but be a bell end. I thought was an interesting one. Riffing off the back of your big sex in the city chat, big was like became a backable mm. bell end. Like yeah. again, my relationship with <laughs> in that argument all the women in Sex in the City a little bit, like, a little bit of a bellend. Like. Harry. <laughs> Harry is definitely a bellend, I have to say. Alexander Petrovsky. Alexander oh, Petrovsky. Raging bellend. Raging bellend. Have a bit of this. You'll like it. You'll like it. Uh, don't, yeah. Don't talk uh-huh. about but I think definitely Carrie and Charlotte were bellends. Like, really kind of, yeah, a little bit of smugness, very judgmental. Yeah, two out of four balance. Yeah, 50%, 50% balance. <laughs> yeah, and then along the kind of smug, but also back will end, uh, Adam Scott as, as Moriarty and Sherlock. Um, just a really enjoyable, that was a really delicious balance, I would say. Oh, yeah. A, he, a new subcategory. Yeah. Of delicious what a job he did yeah yeah mm-hmm. and because he, he was so entertaining entertaining mm. bellendry you kind of were rooting for it. you didn't want him to die and of course they kept bringing him back anyway quite rightly because he was so charismatic and fun wasn't it fun bellends that's a different that's a different category mm. actually we got maybe james I'm, I'm only i'm only saying this because he's not here but maybe james is a fun bellend in, this, in a way <laughs> yeah. in a way like that 20 minute fucking indulgent ramble about Game of Thrones the other week was a bit like, you know, Moriarty might do that kind of thing and, you know, in a way quite entertaining. <laughs> he said he would corner you in a pub and just talk at you and mm. talk at you and talk at you until, like, he's tired himself out. Like, it's like a giant baby, but there is a, there is a with balance, I would think, there's a, a, a some lack of self-awareness and I oh, feel God, yeah. like me and, me and Boyd over the last five years or whatever have, have worked <laughs> at bringing a bit of self-awareness into James's life, which I worry then kind of knocks his bell end edges off because once you understand and mm. you start to consider other people, but then he did do that 20 minute monologue uh, the yeah. other week that You're never none gonna... of us asked for or wanted. And uh, yeah. yeah, not that much self-awareness. You're never going to get rid of it completely, yeah. No. no, no. Right, so I think we have covered bell ends, both real 
and cinematic and otherwise. So let's move on to news. Where are we starting this week? Well, I thought I'd mention a, not a, a very unpilot TV show, but I think this was a huge, really the biggest news of the week, I think, was the cancellation of Holby City by the BBC. Yeah. Because this is a show that's been going on for 22 years, I think, 22, 23 years. And even though it's not a show that, you know, I watch every week and it is, you know, it's it's actually been responsible for a huge number of writers and directors mm. and crew and actors. And it's these Casualty and Holby, which kind of are taken for granted, I think, by everyone, by viewers of BBC, I hope, you know, I hope, but not by the people who make them, have just been incredible breeding grounds for TV talent. So I think it's a big, big decision by the BBC. It's a huge decision to get rid of Holby City. Casualty is carrying on. But I've seen a lot of people on Twitter and social media talking about how, you know, they hope this means that they come up with something else. They're saying the BBC, I think the BBC is planning on bringing in new serial dramas and making them, you know, outside of London, outside of the normal cities that get given these shows to make. So that's a good thing. So it could end up being a good thing, but it's definitely interesting that they've decided to do that at this moment in time. And I think there are a lot of people are worried about what it means for young, particularly young talent coming up in the TV industry. And you do, I always think shows like Holby that have become a bit of a British institution are somehow always safe, that they must have enough yeah. of a you know, regular mm. audience that that wouldn't happen. But I, yeah, I saw a lot of sadness around it, as you say, particularly mm. from the industry, because it's been such an amazing training ground. But yeah, sad news. And the other thing it did, I think it, did, it definitely did, which like kind of reality TV, we talk, often talk about how, you know, Big Brother drove representation for trans people, for gay people, mm. for um, ethnic minorities. And Holby has been doing that for years. You know, Holby's been mm. dealing with storylines about, you know, interesting, challenging storylines and representing people on TV who aren't normally represented in mainstream drama. And, and Holby and Casualty, I know, have done a brilliant job at that for years and years and years. So again, it's like, I hope that the BBC makes sure that that kind of thing carries on in whatever they replace it with. Yeah. Do we want to talk a little bit about the TV BAFTAs on Sunday? It's, uh, I think everybody pretty much agreed after the dreadful Globe situation, I think everybody felt that the BAFTAs were a much more representative selection of the incredible talent that's in TV at the moment. But your Swindon hometown girls are, are represented. Bethy, who else are you kind of rooting for this Sunday? Oh, my God, everyone? I think everyone. <laughs> I think this is the most interesting list of nominees I've seen in a very, very long time. And by extension, this has been one of the best years in television that I've seen in a really long time. And I think, importantly, I think it's one of the best times for British women in TV. Mm. I honestly don't care who wins in the best lead actress, really. I'd rather it perhaps isn't Jodie Comer because I think Killing Eve has had its dues. But Hayley Squires in Adult Material, fucking brilliant. Billy Piper, obviously, in I Hate Susie, is managing... That, to me, was more stressful than Succession, watching that first episode of I I Hate Susie. was one of the most stressful Mm. first episodes I've ever seen in my life. And I think that's incredible. I think Letitia Wright in Small Acts is incredible. I think (laughs) Michaela Cole... The fact I was like, oh, who's the other... Michaela Cole, who's, who's, who's changing British television. Like, I think we are in 
such an important time for, I mean, representation full stop, absolutely. But mm. I think just based on some of the programs we're talking about at the moment, I've just finished watching uh, We Are Lady Parts, which is that amazing channel for Muslim punk band comedy, which in itself, to say that as a sentence is incredible. And it's, you know, I hope to see that maybe in next year's nominations. But I do think... I don't know, I like to kind of pause and, and reflect on the fact that this has been, a, for me, a really, really significant year. Um, so the lazy answer is to say, like, in, uh-huh. in many of these categories, I don't care. I, I think just to kind of sit back and appreciate who's like Mae Martin, like Daisy Mae Cooper, two of the actresses from, from sex education as well, who handled really naughty, mm. important narratives for young women. I'm I'm really excited to the point where I might not even watch it on Sunday because I don't want to see who loses because <laughs> I'm so attached <laughs> to everybody. Yeah. So I'm really I'm really excited for them all. I think it's it's yeah I think it's important, especially given that I mean Destroyer was just shunned on an international scale that it gets credit where credit's due. And as I say, some of the more obvious like Killing Eve, I do hope that does take a, a back seat this time. But otherwise, oh yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough mm. to watch. I wrote a thing for I wrote a thing in Heat about how I think it's the best best nominations ever. I really do. I think mm, it reflects yeah. how what an incredible year of TV it's been. And look at drama miniseries, right? No, uh, the, the nominees I don't are want adult, it. A, all right, adult material, adult material, incredible, normal people, and then I may destroy you and small acts. Now, mm. I, I mean, these those, small acts and I may destroy you are two of the most like gargantuan TV achievements ever, let alone in the last year. Fuck knows how you decide between those. I mean, I, I, I can't. I, I really want. I know Mechanical's going, so you know we get sent a list of all the people. But by the time this comes out on Monday, it will all have happened, of course. But so the the the, the performer nominees can attend this year, which unlike last year, it was all done on Zoom. So they'll be there at BBC TV Centre in White City. But I really want Michaela Cole yeah, to win, to kind of win everything <laughs> if possible. But mm. I mean, you can't complain if Small Axe wins everything as well, because it was just incredible. So how, yeah, deciding between that kind of, those kind of things is incredible. And I also, Daisy May Cooper, I hope is attending. And what, what, I, I'm particularly looking forward to whatever the fuck she wears. Because as oh you say, there was the Swindon, there was the Swindon outfit. There was the Bin dustbin liner out year outfit. She, yeah. I mean, yeah, whatever she looks like and says is going to be incredible. It was the David Copperfield cloak she wore. Do you remember to like the yes. personal history of David Copperfield? Yes. She wore David Copperfield magician's yes. cloak. It's Brilliant. so good. I've never yeah. been prouder. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I'm just going to plug the next issue of Empire here because after seeing the incredible nominations and winners of the Film BAFTA Awards, seeing the kind of Brit talent represented at the Oscars and then seeing the TV BAFTAs, we decided to do what we're calling a British New Wave issue. And we've gathered together 26 writers, actors and directors who are essentially dominating globally. And we have quite a few people who are up for an award this Sunday in there, including Billy Piper, including Hayley Squires, some of the Army Destroy You cast. It is... A huge, incredible thing that we pulled together, I have to say. I know I would say that because, you know, <laughs> I edit the magazine. Well, I, I couldn't be prouder of it. And, and on our covers, we have Emerald Fennell, we have Riz Ahmed, we have Kingsley oh. Benadir, and we have Bucky uh, Bakray, who obviously won the Rising Star BAFTA. So we've, I feel genuinely that there is 
a sense, a tangible sense of this being a really unique and special time for this whole generation of talent who they're not kind of rising stars in that they are they are globally famous, but who are going out onto the world stage and showing kind of what British creators can make that is toe-to-toe with anything, you know, you'd see on HBO or, or anything like that. And they are absolutely dominating these things as they should. Incredible, incredible talent that we are lucky enough to to see on our screens, both big and small. So if that interests you, go and buy a copy of Empire. <laughs> we hope you like it very much. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, that is going to be exciting. Any more news? What was this about Jupiter's legacy? Oh, yeah, they're resting it. Oh, they put pressing they're... pause. <laughs> what? Pressing, pressing pause. pause. Yeah. So it says yeah. they're focusing instead on a series based on super crooks. And the, because Jupiter's legacy was meant to be, well, there was meant to be another, was it a, another series or just? Or something a spin-off based on it, Boydie. I can't remember. I think I think they hoped there would be another series. Yeah, I know Mark Miller, who, who's kind of co-created it, has a, he has a big deal with Netflix anyway. I think mm. generally for loads of loads of stuff. So I'm not sure he'll be too devastated. But I think you know, for those of us who watched it in the nicest possible way, I don't think it's a big surprise they're not carrying on with that particular <laughs> that particular. No, show. this super crooks idea that is part of Mark Miller's kind of Netflix yeah. world, right? So it's it's still exactly. I mean, yeah, Mark Miller confirmed that Super Crooks adaptation of his Super Crooks series will take the place of a second series of Jupiter's Legacy. So I guess that's like I don't know. That's a, that, that might be a little bit of a spin on it in a way, but because as I yeah. understand, it, he has got loads of projects in the pipeline mm. for Netflix. Mm. And I like Mark Miller; he's very hard, hugely entertaining. And I just think this didn't work. I just think Jupiter's Legacy just didn't work. And it's good to recognise that and to move on, I suppose. Yeah. In other Netflix news, I mentioned last week the OA. My my OA obsession continues. How Mm -hmm. there were rumours percolating and... Zalbat Manglidge, the co-creator, had kind of posted on on Instagram some mysterious messages. Well, this week, he, Zal, and Britt Marling posted the same image at the same time on Instagram of something being filmed. Now, all I'm saying is uh, that is thrilling to me as actual confirmation that the OA might be revived and somehow might move to another streaming service like NBC's Peacock. Just the idea that Zal and Britt are back making something is brilliant news to me because I think they are absolute creative geniuses. And whatever it is, OA or not, I'm incredibly excited about. Yeah, because I am still, I remain smacked of God that no other network picked it up because I just, I thought it would just be inevitable. Yeah. I think those things are are, are really, can end up being really difficult and complicated. And I think Netflix is particularly reluctant to let that happen. Like they don't want to be seen to be, so they they do it all the time. They take over other networks and streaming Mm. services stuff. You know, they've got Lucifer at the moment. They revived Lucifer, which is hugely popular. But they, I think, are particularly reluctant to let anyone else carry on something they've axed for, for want of, for them being shown to be not, bold and creative enough when this thing comes back and is incredibly brilliant and everyone's very happy. I don't think they want to be seen to be in that light. So I think that might be partly why it takes so long and it's so difficult to, to, to end up happening. But we live and we hope. Okay, any more news before we go to reviews? So first up, we have Intelligence Season 2. At the end of the first season of the Nick Mohammed created comedy, we saw Jerry, played by David Schwimmer, almost extradited for treason. And as this season opens, he finds himself at the heart of a cyber weapon threat from Russia. Now, Boydie, we, I think, 
gave this a bit of a kick in season one, if I remember rightly. But I also think you did a reverse ferret. So where do you stand now as we go forth with season two? Well, I think you and James and maybe even Beth, I think Beth might have been involved. I can't remember in, in reviewing it. But, You're getting dragged um, into it now, Beth. Yeah, I'm dragging Beth into it as well. My slight revert, I, I mean, I enjoyed it more than I think you guys did from the start. My one, I didn't quite get on board fully with David Schwimmer's performance. That was, I think, one of my observations in the first series. But you know what? I've complete my reverse ferret is fully reversed because I'm now fully on board with this performance. And I don't know whether it's because I've seen a lot of him. Obviously, the Friends reunion a week ago, we were like Schwimmer is the king of the Friends reunion for me because he just like drove it. He was the first to arrive on the set. He he hosted the trivia quiz bit. His revelation that he could crushing on Jen Ann and her then going, yeah, it was mutual, was the historic revelation of the whole thing. Amazing. He just came out of it so well that I, I think I now fully love him as a human being. And I'm now, and I watched, I devoured, I have to say, all six episodes of the new series of Intelligence. I went back and watched older episodes of Intelligence and I'm now fully on board with him. And I I think he does a really fun, I think he throws himself into it, perhaps even more in season two with Gusto and Verve into this. Uh, he Talking of Bellends and Doofuses, he's a gigantic Bellend and Doofus, this character. <laughs> he's self-absorbed. He's kind of an idiot. I, I love the fact that pretty much every single character in Intelligence is on some level an idiot. Like they, These are people are supposed to be, that is, I guess, the, the you know one of the running jokes is that these people are working in counterintelligence and they're supposed to be unearthing what's going on in the world and, and they're supposed to be geniuses on one level, but actually they're all, most of them, almost all of them are on some level really, really stupid. And I find that very entertaining. It's a shamelessly old school, silly, preposterous. It will use everything. There are double entendres, terrible puns, good puns, pop culture references. There's a really, I thought in the first episode, there's a really funny Chernobyl joke that I thought was great where <laughs> you think there's good. <laughs> Terry's shaking her head. Boy, boy, yeah, oh, it made me laugh. I've, it really I've made me laugh. Oh, jeez. I've oh, written that down. I thought it was, was great. Like, no, there's a turn it, yes. there's a turn it on and turn it back off again, Joe. Like, oh, not actually, that, yeah, there's a turn it on and there's a turn it on and turn it off. My there's a spotted dick joke. <laughs> yeah, oh, I mean, there's a sexuality of the Unibomber joke. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, but uh, the Chernobyl joke I thought was good. She's we could have another Chernobyl on our hands, and Nick Mahomet says I couldn't get through the first season. Oh, <laughs> so I thought that was really it's funny. So cheesy. So, it is cheesy. <laughs> it's unashamedly cheesy, silly, preposterous. But I really like it. I really it makes me happy. I love Nick Mahomet. Um, you know, from Ted Lasso and other stuff. I think that it's it's devotion to silliness and stupidity in all its different forms is very refreshing because we are in a world where, I've mentioned this before, you know, and I love how Feel Good deals with big issues and trauma. And I love how almost every other comedy on TV, Breeders that I mentioned, is dealing with big heavy issues and they and they and they work very hard on knitting together the funny with the drama but i actually really like the fact that there's a show this show that is flat out preposterous and stupid <laughs> and will embrace any level of joke from awful to cringeworthy to i think really funny and smart and i really enjoy it what can i say I mean, I don't like to go against <laughs> anything that makes Boyd this no, happy, no. but I think it's because I just like those other shows so much more. And I think if we're talking about something like Ted Lasso, which does a similar job of plucking a, a, a raging yank in the middle of a very British scenario and kind of seeing what happens and seeing how that manifests in a way that's very 
kind and also very funny and pulls off incredible physical gags and things in the same way that something like intelligence does also intelligence got a little dark in that first episode there is a moment where we find out something about david schwimmer's character jerry where and i'm saying this to boyd it's it's unfortunate it's happened around the same time that friends has come up again because i just think of Ross going through this kind of past trauma and it just is if is more jarring because of that than anything else that's going on in the show but it's it's so daft and I, I appreciate the appeal in doing that but I just I'm, I'm a bigger fan of the shows that have got something else to say so it's it's weird because I hated season one like hated like just I just thought it was poorly written I thought all oh, the performances were just just no and I watched this first episode and I was like, I think I kind of like it a bit. And then I thought, to Boyd's point, did I misjudge the first season? I went back and watched the first episode of the first season. No, I did not. It is not good. But I think it's better. I'm not saying it's for me, but it's definitely better. The writing feels better. And David, something has shifted with David Schwimmer. He feels way more comfortable in that role. There's a self-consciousness that I, I think really translated on screen in the first season. Like you felt like you were watching him act and that he was awkward about acting like that. Whereas this, he's almost thrown himself into it with such gusto that that kind of self-consciousness and awkwardness that wasn't part of the character, but was just your reaction to, to his performance. That didn't exist for me this time. And I, I mean, the jokes are the most obvious jokes there if they as you say they leave no stone unturned in their search for a gag they don't mind if it's a pun they don't mind if it's a joke that's been done seven thousand times in way better ways there is a unibomber being single gag <laughs> as we said there is a bloody chernobyl gag there's a turning it off and on again gag which nobody's allowed to do in a workplace comedy ever again <laughs> but there's a charm in it this time that was lacking mm. last time and it feels more comfortable with itself and more confident in itself and everybody involved does and I, 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 don't, I found myself warming to it it was a very weird experience I was like what is this I am feeling I feel <laughs> joy and happiness <laughs> I think his. I think you're right. So so true about his performance. I think he really has. Yeah. I think he just feels more comfortable in it now. Yeah. Mm. And that makes a, that makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Mm. A massive difference. Because I still enjoy when I went back and watched it. I still enjoyed it. But you're, but it's all about that. I think everyone. I think almost everyone kind of then responds better as well. Everyone else is more comfortable. Yeah. Because and it doesn't it per, and it permeates out. And I was thinking about his performance as Ross. And the bits when David Schwimmer is funniest is when he would do that really full commitment Ross kind of I think a lot of it was physical comedy with Ross but he really committed when Ross was a massive doofus dinosaur loving doofus his most dinosaur loving doofiest ever David Trimmer kind of went all in at that point and I feel like that's that's what you're kind of seeing now and it's still I think quite far away from some of the other stuff we're talking about comedy-wise, especially in British television at the moment. But I don't, I don't hate it. And I think if you if you were kind of cold on season one, give season two a go because it, it definitely feels like a step forward for me. And there is yeah, warmth. So. There's a lovely warmth, the joy and charm to this show for sure. And Diane Morgan pops up 
in series two. Diane Morgan a... pops up and she makes everything 73% better. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the waterboarding um, scene, I thought in episode two was utterly hilarious, honestly, with, I mean, yeah. And a ma- massive physical comedy effort from, mm. from David Schwimmer in that, in that scene, yeah. Uh, boy, D, when does that start? That starts on Tuesday on Sky One slash now at 10 p.m. Okay, okay. Next up, we have Australian Noiri police procedural thriller, the gloaming. Australian Noir, not something I thought I'd ever say. From creator and writer Vicky Madden, it stars Ewan Leslie as an officially troubled police detective who discovers that a recent murder may, in fact, be personal. To tell us about the place with all of the fog, Swindon's finest, Bethy. <laughs> So I think if we break down, first of all, what Australian noir translates as, which to me was like, it was a mix of Scandi noir paired with like the music videos that I used to watch on like MTV2 when I was a teenager. (laughs) So like there's a kind of flashback (laughs) sequence that it opens on and it looks like an Evanescence video. Like it looks, there's like slow motion crows flying off into the distance. It's very goth. It's very moody. Um, and then it cuts to this kind of Twin Peaks-esque small town in Tasmania where a woman has been found at the bottom of a waterfall. So that's instantly setting you off on like a Lynchian foot. Like mm. it's not trying to deny that it's trying to kind of ride on those coattails. And it's been compared to Top of the Lake as well with Elizabeth Moss. I'm trying to suss it out tonally because it's one of those shows where people's full names are said a lot. So it's like, well, 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 if it isn't Molly McGee and Jenny McGinty, kind of, you you son of a gun. And you can't tell. (laughs) The thing is, I would love that if it was kind of said with tongue in cheek, but I can't tell. Because tonally, I think for me, it's just a little bit chaotic. So it starts with a flashback where there's a alluded to there's a there's a murder um between a young Alex who's the detective working on the case today and his friend Jenny McGinty, the Jenny McGinty. And that's told by a flashback. And then you're brought forward to the current day where Molly McGee, which is her real name, is a kind of harried detective who is trying to solve this this new murder. There's a lot of shady goings on in the town as well. And while they're trying to solve this murder, or while she's trying to, to solve the murder in the first instance, there's a kind of a paranormal aspect to it as well. So there's mysterious figures showing up in backgrounds and flashing lights and and all sorts of kind of suspect things. So this is all kind of going on at the same time. Molly McGee's not having a great time. She's eating fish and chips a lot and drinking a lot of whiskey. So she's clearly working through some stuff. But I think as well, watching this off the back of Mare is not doing the show any favours because her idea of Harriet is just drinking whiskey and looking like she should be in like a next catalogue. Uh-huh. Like she just wears nice cardigans and and lets herself go a little bit of a Friday night. But there's nothing to kind of... She's, she's not very convincing as somebody, I think, who's seen a lot, which is what you want to believe this character has done. She's also a bad detective. So there's an instance in this. One of the subplots is um, there's, a, there's a girl called Daisy and her brother, I think it is, who um, have committed a a murder, quite a grisly one. And the, the girl, Daisy, shows up at the station to kind of, and she's all teary. And uh, Molly McGee says, essentially, just eat a sandwich and then leaves. <laughs> and that's how she kind of deals yeah. with this, deals with this girl kind of showing up at the station. She asks her, you know, 
are, are you using again? And then asks her colleague to get her a sandwich and leaves. And I just think the point I'm making with that is I just think that, that this, this kind of genre of shows, the writing has become so thorough and airtight, Mare being an example, where you just wouldn't, that's not authentic anymore. That doesn't feel authentic to me. It feels like it's just sort of a stoppy way of, of getting around the plot. So yeah, it, it felt like it was trying to do a lot. Some things it pulled off, it was, it was beautifully shot, definitely. And it leans into the location a lot. Um, and there are some, there are multiple kind of mysteries being peppered throughout the show to be solved, but I couldn't work out what it was trying to say tonally. And I didn't care enough about the characters to see what will happen next. Whereas with those shows that I really need to be invested, I need to be invested in the lead character. I need to, to a degree, be invested in the person that's been killed, which again, both, both very relevant with Mare. And I liked that they took the time to give the, the victim in that first episode of real story um so f- yeah for me it, it just it seemed a bit chaotic and and a bit disingenuous i think you're right in it not matching because there's something so the, the cinematography is in, incredible and well, i just want to name check the cinematographer Marden dean and it look and it looks like a expensive prestige drama it has a certain visual palette but then from a storytelling perspective, as you say, the tone is all over the shop. There's a lot, there is a, a love of a cliche. I am a hard-bitten, troubled woman and I'm going to drink and look out of my window a lot. And I'm even going to get so drunk that I'm going to have a little dance to some angsty music. It's like <laughs> officially troubled, capital O, capital C. <laughs> this is how I express myself, single mother. I mean, it's just, and, it, and so there's a lot of, and I love a police procedural, as we all know. So, And I'm not above a cliche. Some may say I am a cliche. However, like it's it, so it didn't kind of have a a connection for me between how it looked, the story it was telling, and the the language, the literal language it used, and how that paired up with the visual language. Because I was expecting something much better because of that opening scene you talked about. I was like, "Fuck me!" They're like they are really going for this, and as you say, really leaning into the environment and and created this real weird, spooky sense. And then it was kind of felt like more of a bog standard police procedural troubled cop. Some people have been murdered thing. And 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 I'm not sure all of the threads come together perfectly either. So it's quite hard to work out as a as a viewer. And I didn't find any of it. I didn't find her truthfully compelling enough to to pull you through and as you say coming out in the in the wake of mayor is a difficult thing i think but boydie where did you sit on it oh the timing could not be worse i mean no. the, mayor, the mayor factor really because there are a lot of surface similarities i mean right down to you know the the, the way the discovery of the body with the waterfall in the background and you know going into the woods. I mean, how many crime dramas now involve people getting lost in the woods or disappearing in the woods or getting killed in the woods? And then, oh, I mean, we have to, that has to stop quite soon, I guess. Um, (laughs) But just, I think the problem is that, as you've both alluded to, if it, you are, I think with this thing, and I think now um, you could almost set this aside. You could almost get like students of creating television or whatever, put this show next to Mayor of East Town and next to maybe even something like Dublin Murders as well because it's got a lot of in common with that with that kind of show and as you say in Twin Peaks but I think you either go one with the other you either go realism as in Mayor of East Town where 
every, all the characters are three-dimensional and they're vibrant and you believe in them and, and time and effort has been spent making them feel incredibly authentic and real. And therefore, the kind of visual quality of it... Funnily enough, someone DM'd me about Merovice saying they thought he looked quite shoddy, shoddily made. And I was like, I don't think it is. I think what, no. what it is is it's not, it's not trying to be glossy and slick and beautiful. It's actually trying to be... It's trying to be real above all else, authentic. And that's that's its visual style as well. Whereas this thing, the gloaming, and it goes from the title, by the way. I mean, the pretentiousness of the title to the way it's shot. The, as you say, beautiful cinematography, but sometimes there's like a long lingering shot of a waterfall or a bit of landscape in Tasmania to no effect whatsoever or not advancing anything. In fact, there are transitions, just shots of the landscape. And then there'll be a sequence, an interior sequence. And you're like, well, what was the point of that shot? Just to remind us that you can give us beautiful images of Tasmania, but they're forgotten. And they're trying to be intense and moody and kind of expressionistic, you know, like a Dublin Murders or a Twin Peaks. But those shows were on the intensity so much and they create this atmosphere this queasy atmosphere this doesn't quite pull that off either so it's not neither one nor the other and the crime is is too confusing there's too they, they give us too many they cut between too many characters doing different things that are you, you can't work out how they're related to the crime and they're not interesting enough either because they're spending so much i think on the look of it they're spending so much time on the look of it that it's not compelling and the fact that it is beautifully filmed isn't enough I mean, it's just not enough you know there are so many shows these days that are beautifully filmed and and for me it's like everything that mayor of Easttown is this isn't and it's not either those other types of shows that pull off a different way of doing a murder, a crime drama that are that are very moody and have that atmosphere. So it's just nothing really. And, and yeah, I was very, I was, I was disappointed. You've articulated it perfectly, actually, because that's what I was grappling with was that disconnect between a kind of what it looked like, but then how it functioned. And it's exactly that, which is it, it doesn't match at all because that kind of. I'm, we're going to be noir we're going to be prestige, we're going mm. to be, you know, really probably high concept and, and quite arty, and, and, but then it felt, and then having the kind of more procedural, almost basic storytelling within it, that was just a really weird, uncomfortable marriage for me. Some of it was like daytime television soap territory, down yeah. to some of the acting yeah. as well. There was a moment yeah. in it where there's a guy who we don't know who he is yet really, and he throws his phone down on the table. And I liken it to Tommy Wiseau in, in the room when he throws <laughs> the water bottle down. <laughs> it is extraordinary. Just really going hell for But it was all kinds of daytime soap levels are bad and not in a way that felt purposefully kitsch. Like I can, Mm. you know, with things like Twin Peaks, there's something about those slightly off-kilter performances and hamminess that works for it. And yeah, you're right. The the, the two languages just didn't tally up at all. It was very confusing to me. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you on the the daytime. So the the scene where, like, this big scenes, like where you and Leslie's detectives coming back to this town for the first time in years. And he sees, and of course he's, has a connection to the the female cop as well. And when they first clap eyes on each other, I thought the reaction shots and just the timing of it was just almost yeah. comical. It was like, <laughs> you know, those moments are just mishandled. And it was and it was like, you know, I, I often go back to A Touch of Cloth, my the, the, the brilliant spoof of all of these shows. And it's very A Touch of Cloth. Mm. It's very, it takes itself very seriously. And in the end, ends up being quite comical as a result. So, we're probably not saying you should watch it, but if you'd like to ignore our advice, Boydie, where and when can uh, this be seen? Friday, star on Disney Plus, as it's known. Okay. Mm. 
Yeah. Now, lastly, this week we have filmed, turned star play series for Blind Spotting, created by lifelong friends Raphael Cassell and David Diggs. The show picks up six months after the film as Miles is being put into the back of the squad car, shattering girlfriend Ashley's, aka Jasmine Cephas Jones's, dreams of upward mobility and independence. She only has to move in with his mum and his sister. And his mum is so excitingly played by Helen Hunt, who is amazing. Spoiler. Sorry, I, I just have to say that because I nearly fell off my chair. <laughs> Boydie, did this make you go blind with joy? <laughs> <laughs> that was a tribute to James Dyer. That, 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 that intro. <laughs> um, I, just to get, yeah, I mean, Helen Hunt. Helen Hunt, fucking hell. I, oh. you, you know, I just love Helen Hunt. Why hasn't she been in everything, you know? What the fuck is going on? As good as it gets, you know, which is, I, I watch, every time as good as it, it gets comes on TV. Night. It was on the other night, right? Yeah. And I watched the whole fucking thing. It's it. one of those and things I, where you start yeah. watching it and you're like, I'm not going to watch this again. But it's so brilliantly done. I said done. to my boyfriend, Why, where has Helen Hunt been? Why, how is she yeah. not in every amazing prestige I mean, telly yeah. show going, quite honestly? Seri- absolutely, seriously. So it's just a joy, first and foremost, to have her. And she is this this mother of very of all these women. She's looking after this woman. She's living in this big house. And there's all these women wandering around naked or semi-naked because they're all doing their Instagrams. They're all doing like, you know, sexy Instagrams or fans. What's the fans only thing called? Um, you know, only fans. Fans only. Fans only, only fans. Light bulb moment. Um, I'm really, I'm really being, I'm being my middle age today. Um, so she's in charge. She's in charge of this weird, weird, weird situation. She's absolutely brilliant. I mean, it is, like a character and as good as it gets a bit. I felt like she's transplanting mm. that character into this situation. But she's fantastic. Jasmine Cephas Jones is brilliant as Ashley, the kind of she's dealing with she's dealing with a lot. She's dealing with her husband's gone to her boyfriend's gone to prison. Um the kid who's unbelievably cute by the way. Oh. And I think what this show does, which is what I think the film did, it carries on what from you know from when the film left off in this, is that it shows you the kinds of characters who not so long ago, five, ten years ago, would have been one-dimensional stereotypes in films and TV. You know, people hanging out on street corners and, you know, shouting for a hot dog to each other and, and being people mugging, you know, someone being mugged for their for their ring, for their engagement ring. And that those characters would be just one-dimensional stereotypes, basically. This fleshes them out and it, it, it adds three dimensions to all these kind of characters who were once dismissed and not focused on properly in TV and not represented properly in TV and film. And that, I think it does it really, really well. And it's got a kind of freewheeling... We talk about people, you know, tone, tone shifts and all of that. This absolutely shifts tone. One minute, it's got, you know, Ashley being worrying about what's really going on with her partner in prison. And then he's being, he's really quite funny when they have these phone calls with each other and he's kind of manages to deal with being in prison really well. The next minute, you've got the kid dealing with all kinds of issues and not being lied to by his mum. You've got a song and dance number in the middle of it, which I thought was brilliant, brilliant fun and just like really well done. Then you've got this quite disturbing bit where she's being monked for a, for a ring. It kind of, it darts around between all these different tones but actually it pulls them off because it's got the confidence and skill in the writing and the performances to make to make those moments to make the song and dance number as believable as the kind of observations of these women walking around naked for their instagram and only fans so i really liked it i really really liked it i think it's slightly narratively weak because it is being so freewheeling it didn't have a huge amount of narrative drive kind of going you have to carry on watching it 
week after week. But I think that's almost deliberate. And I think it's so enjoyable and entertaining to be to hang with these characters. It's kind of a hangout show, I think. I think that's where it's going. But I probably will carry on watching it because I'm really enjoying being in this world and, and seeing how these characters interact and, and seeing what the hell they do next. I've got to say, it actually reminded me with those kind of switches between, as you say, literal song and dance number, breaking the fourth wall, all of these like a fantasy elements. It reminded me of Rare Beast. Weirdly, the Billy mm-hmm. Piper film, which does yeah. which plays with similar things, and that sense of it of it being a little bit more narratively loose, as you say, because it doesn't have it doesn't have that traditional structure and that kind of traditional way of unrolling a plot. But it is just a really good time. Like I really, I watched this after the gloaming, and I was like, "Oh, yeah. thank Christ!" Yeah, like it's lovely, yeah. love, and it's got so much like joy, and it's just. Fun. It was like a, a really fun half an hour to spend with these people who are utterly charming and funny and warm. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. Bethy, was this one for you? I think Rare Beasts is such a good comparison because the things I loved about Rare Beasts were the theatrical elements of it which only supported the narrative. I hate a, a, a dance or a song and dance number that just just is distracting and, and kind of mm. draws you away, whereas it only bolsters what you're seeing. And that's used beautifully here in Blind Spotting. I think there's some really touching moments, especially when Miles, when, when Ashley comes to visit him in prison for the first time. And there's a, just a small layer of choreography that's involved mm. that tells you so much more about what you're seeing in that interaction so in that respect I, I love it and I love how much they're making use of um, Jasmine Cephas Jones who's won a Grammy mm. she's won a Tony she's she's cut her teeth she's there and she's she's capable of handling all the themes that are happening in the show and then the dialogue which I also loved in Rare Beasts is something that really really stands out here. I think it's the most romantic drug bust I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just lovely. <laughs> Is that what I can say? It was a lovely drug bust. Obviously, it's very sad and, and uncertain and you don't know what the what their fate holds, but there is such a, a lovely nuanced conversation between the partners as he's being taken away where where she's asking what the Wi-Fi password or the, the bank password is. And he's like, I'm not going to shove that at you on the street. You know, just these, these little nuances of, you know, partners that just made it seem so much more normal and, and but also entertaining. So I think that's, that's what really kind of set it apart for me, the narrative and, and the theatrical elements of it. Plus, Helen Hunt saying coochie three times in, in one sentence um, <laughs> was was a real takeaway for me. And you're right, I can't believe that was one of those joyful moments where you see a character moving down the street and she starts on like a mild dance number as well. Like this really wonderful introduction to a character and then the penny drops and you're like, oh my God, it's Helen Hunt. Like, this is fantastic. So yeah, I've only watched one episode, but I will, I will be going back to watch more. I do hope that David Diggs pops up even just for a second i love him Mm. i think he is a very gifted writer and performer and i hope we see a little bit more of him but yeah big fan i was big fan of this what an opening shot by the way the fireworks all the fireworks on new year's eve well i mean just i thought that set the tone for me because this is this is an ambitious big show in many ways and it's kind of trying to Mm. do stuff in a really interesting way so blind spotting is on boydy Sunday the 13th, next Sunday, 13th of June, on Stars Play. Okay, and what would be our pick of the week? Mine would be Blind Spotting, like hands down, hands down. Yeah, Blind Spotting. Yeah, Blind Spotting. 
And we'd even recommend Intelligence Season 2, What Has Happened to the Pilot TV Podcast. <laughs> but those three shows are not all that's out this week. Are they, Boyd? No, there's only there's one big other thing out, which is Lupin. The second half of Lupin, which is this real, massively entertaining crime drama, mystery thriller, caper romp, co-created by George Kay, who did Criminal for Netflix. He created it with Francois Ouzan. It's a French series, but he kind of writes a lot of it. It stars Omar Sy as this, as Saint Diop, the son of an immigrant who took his own life when he was set up by this incredibly rich, privileged family. And he spent the first half half of the story seeking revenge in all kinds of different ways in the first five, ep- five episodes. Now he's at a crisis point as these next five episodes arrive. I've already watched three out of the five of the new episodes. It is every bit as good. It's it's brilliantly done. It's got a Sherlockian quality to it. I feel it's definitely tonally. The, it's got like it, the, the pace, the way it's shot, the music, the whole tone of it. It's got pl- playful kind of people double crossing each other and you never quite know who's working for who and who's working against who. And, and, and that whole kind of like master of disguise kind of idea. It's very playful. It's massively entertaining. If you want, and it arrives on Friday, the second five episodes on Netflix. And if you just, if you haven't seen it, if you want to store up something massively fun and escapist and yet kind of sweet and moving uh, at the same time, you will love Lupin on uh, Netflix. So um, can you watch this second part if you haven't watched the first part? No, 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 no. You have to start at the beginning, yeah. No, you must start at the beginning. And season one is available for people to... Part yeah. one, it's basically all. Gets, yeah, you know, it's basically it's all one season. I think they're calling it. So it's part right. two of the first season, confusingly. But all ten episodes are all five. First five episodes are there now, and all ten will be on there from Friday. Excellent. Thank you for listening and joining us this week. Thank you to Bethy Webb. I really hope that our Berlin discussion took some of the sting out of James's absence. If you, in fact, maybe preferred a Bell End Lights podcast, then please feel free to go and leave us a five-star review. We would be very grateful. In fact, we would find it extraordinary if you did so. Uh, next week, we will be back when we will be reviewing some other TV shows. Until then, pilot out. Mm-hmm.